How are we doing? Everybody awake? All right, good. Just in case you didn't hear me the first time. Hey, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. As you're turning there, know this. This is one of my favorite, favorite sections of the Bible. Romans 14 and 15, friends, are some of the best, in my opinion, some of the best chapters in all of the Scripture. They contain in them principles that I think every Christian needs to live by. And so I hope that as we go through these next few messages in Romans 14 and 15, that you will get a love and a craving for this as I do. Romans 14, chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 1. But before we do, we all remember the story of Genesis, right? We, we remember the story of Adam and Eve and of, of Cain and Abel. And of course, we know the story of Cain killing Abel. Uh, he slayed his brother because he was jealous of him, because God approved of him more than perhaps he did Cain's offering. And so Cain rose up and he killed his brother. He murdered his brother. And as the story goes, the Lord seeks out Cain. And says, Cain, Cain, have you seen your brother Abel? And Cain has quite a memorable line at that point. Cain turns to the Lord and he looks up and he says, he says to the Lord, he says, I don't know where he is. And then he finishes with, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's Keeper? It's interesting, if you go back to Genesis 4, God actually leaves that question unanswered. Instead, He cuts straight to the matter of judging Cain for the murder of his brother Abel. But God's temporary silence to Cain's question in Genesis 4 is actually picked up again later on in the Scriptures. In fact, some thousands of years later, it is Paul writing in Romans chapter 14 who looks back all the way to the event of Genesis 4 and to the question, am I my brother's keeper? It is Paul who in Romans 14 writes definitively, yes, you are. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. The title of this upcoming series that we're going to go through, three messages, is I Am My Brother's Keeper. I Am My Brother's Keeper. In part one today, I've entitled it, Resist Turning Gray into Black and White. Resist Turning Gray into Black and White. Paul's going to talk about a lot of things in Romans 14 and 15. Particularly, he's going to be going over uh, what we might call gray areas in the Christian life. And he's going to relate those gray areas, how we're to interact with them, whether we're to do them or not, how we're we're to respond to those who do them or not. And he's going to relate that to being your brother's keeper. We'll see that in just a few moments. But first, what are are some gray areas in uh, in, uh, the Christian life today? I mean, think, think of some things out there that... What are some things that some Christians think are good and okay and permissible, and other, th- other Christians think are bad and absolutely are, are forbidden. Can you give me an example? Well, entertainment. Okay, how about uh, a, a rated R movie? Is a rated R movie good or bad? 
Some might say good, some might say bad. Give me another example. Smoking. Is smoking permissible according to Scripture or forbidden? People would probably chalk that up to a gray area. What about drinking alcohol? Is that okay or is that not okay? What about gambling? Is that okay or is that not okay? What about, uh, let's see, are there any others? Uh, How about speeding? No, John. No, actually, that, that one, your government has actually said, limit, John, limit. But that, it's okay, John, because I know that you never speak, so I know we're, we're okay there. Dancing, tattoos, secular music, the list goes on and on and on. I could list hundreds of things and ask everybody in the audience, is this okay or is this not okay? And I get different answers. To those who instinctively assume that all these gray areas are wrong, you're going to hear Paul tell you, resist turning what is gray into matters of black and white. But also, to those of you who look at all these gray areas and say, all those are permissible, And to those of you who might look down on others who think they're wrong, Paul will also tell you to resist judging their reaction as a matter of black and white. You see, in the Bible, friends, there are many things that are gray. These gray areas are called Christian liberties. And with respect to these gray areas, both to what is done and how others react to what is done, we are called to show a lot of grace and a lot of carefulness. We are called to not turn gray matters into matters of black and white. Why? Because you are your brother's keeper. Let's turn to Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And I'd ask us all to stand as we read uh, the word for us today. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go all the way to uh, verse 13. So a little, little bit of a lengthy text, but we will be moving through it rather quickly. Romans 14, verse 1. Paul writes, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one person believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him who does not eat, uh, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Verse 4, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. And he who gives, uh, and gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, 
says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And finally, verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. But rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You may be seated. Verse 1, verse 1, Paul writes, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Right from the start, right from the start of this chapter, Paul is urging the Roman Christians to do something. Uh, He's gone through chapter 12 and he's talked about uh, how they're to interact individually before themselves and before God. In chapter 13, he talked about how we're to react to the government. And here in chapter 14 and 15, Paul's going to talk about how to interact with each other, with each other. And here he says, right from the get-go in Romans 14.1, he says, receive, accept, welcome in those who are weak in the faith. We have two groups of people then Paul is addressing. Number one, we have the weak who are to be received, who are to be, who are to be welcomed, who are to be loved into, in, into the faith. And number two, we have the people who are to receive them. Later on in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul's going to uh, quite commonly call them the strong. So we have the weak who are to be received and the strong who are to receive them. Accepting, uh, Paul says, accept the weak into your fellowship. Engage them as members of the body of Christ. But, Paul says, don't dispute with them over doubtful Things, doubtful things, bring them in, welcome them, accept them, but don't get into disputes with them over doubtful things. Like what? Like what, Paul? He says, like eating, like eating. Yeah, like eating. Verse two, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now that's quite a strange statement and if we don't have any historical context for what we're reading we'll miss we'll completely miss what Paul's saying that's why history and historical context is so important when we read the bible what is Paul talking about he's talking about the mosaic law the mosaic law forbade eating certain kinds of foods certain kinds of meats there's strict dietary laws Uh, Tom Constable writes this, When Paul wrote Romans, the group included Jewish Christians who, because of their background in Judaism, tended to perpetuate the practices commanded in the Mosaic Law. In other words, they tended, even though they were Jewish Christians, they tended to want to go back and pull in with them that Old Testament law, that the dietary laws, ceremonial laws, religious observances, days, seasons, etc., festivals, they'd pull in the Old Testament law into the community of the church. And oftentimes they'd pull in those dietary laws and expect every single person in the pew to follow and pay heed to those laws, even though in the church in Rome, the vast majority of people in the pew, so to speak, were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. 
If you read Acts 10, you see Peter learning that God had set aside the dietary laws. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says all foods are clean before the Lord. But back in the first century, uh, this was a major beef, no pun intended, uh, in Jewish Christian circles. This was a, a big deal. Dietary laws was a big deal. I would liken it to maybe uh, drinking today. Drinking is drinking alcohol is a big deal in Christian circles today. I can give you a, a list, a, a long list of churches across America and across the entire world, Christian churches who would say from their doctrinal statement that drinking alcohol is sinful and forbidden. And I could equally show you a long list of Christian churches, both here in America and around the world, who would say, hey, drink to your heart's content, just don't get drunk. So you have Christians on this side, and you have Christians on this side, and that if, we, if we're to take the example of drinking and apply it to Romans 14, we can kind of get an idea of the conflict that was going on in the first century in Rome. What if I did substitute drinking for eating? Let's read Paul's words again. For one believes he may drink all things, but he who is weak drinks only water and Diet Coke. Okay? Now, had Paul said this, boy, there'd probably be a fight on our hands, right? In the Christian church, there'd probably be a little bit of disputes over, you know, who was right, the weak or the strong. But let me let you in on a little, little secret about where Paul's going with this. Paul is not simply restricting what he is saying to dietary law. He is not relegating his discussion to food. Instead, Paul wishes that Christians will use the example of verse 2 and extend it to all areas, all areas of human life. And Paul would respond to us and say, if something is forbidden in Scripture, then we should forbid it. Things like stealing, things like sexual immorality, black and white. If it's forbidden in Scripture, then we should forbid it. But, if something is permissible in Scripture, then we should permit it. Things like eating food in the first century. Things like drinking alcohol. Paul would have us recognize that these are gray areas. These are areas of Christian liberty. Nowhere in the, in the Scripture, nowhere will you find that drinking alcohol is forbidden. What is forbidden is drunkenness. Even Jesus drank wine and encouraged the festivities at a wedding in Cana when He performed the miracle of turning water into wine. Now some of us, we hear that and we immediately start raising, our, uh, raising some objections to that. Maybe we talk about the consistency of the wine in the first century. Or maybe we talk about uh, well, that wine was a, was a health matter in the first century. Um, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard those arguments and I don't find them very convincing. But even if they were convincing, it remains true that nowhere in Scripture is alcohol forbidden. I need to think about that for those of you that um, consider alcohol to be a sin. We need to consider that. 
We need to we need to let our presuppositions about what is right and wrong be guided by this and nothing else. And if this doesn't forbid alcohol, then why would we? Something to think about. But of course, now our, our blood level might be rising a bit. Some of us who think alcohol is sinful may feel a bit, of, a little bit of anger and resentment that I stand here challenging that presupposition. Others of us who think alcohol is permissible might be going, preach it, brother, preach it. I'm tired of, I'm tired of those people judging me for taking a, having a glass of wine at dinner. Preach it. You know what Paul would say to both of you? He'd say both of you are acting in a way that is unbecoming of Christ. Both the one who thinks it's sinful and, and despises others who do it, and the one who says, preach it, and shows judgment on those who think it's sinful. So Paul would, Paul would respond to you and say, both of you have some problems that you need to deal with here. What are those problems? Take a look at verse 3. Verse 3, Paul writes, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Verse 4, For who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. I say again, Paul would have you take the principle in verse 3, the dietary law, the eating, and apply it into all areas, all gray areas of human life. Eating, drinking, dancing, etc. Let him who, okay, drinks, let's put that in there for a moment. Let, let, let not him who drinks alcohol despise him who does not drink alcohol. And let not him who does not drink alcohol judge him who drinks alcohol, for God has received him. To those of you who, who drink alcohol, what is your reaction to others who do not? Do you instinctively show contempt for them? Despise them? Ekutheneo in Greek, to treat with contempt, to look down on them, to look at them and think, ah, you know, they don't know. Paul says, shame on you. Resist, resist that reaction to despise those who do not do what you do. And to those of you who do not drink alcohol, what is your reaction to those who do? Do you judge them? Do you judge them? Do you condemn them? Do you despise them? Paul says, shame on you. Resist turning what is gray into black and white. Who are you, Paul writes in verse 4, to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Who are you to judge what another man does before the Lord? There is one judge, and we are not him. Even in matters of eating and drinking, we are not to judge one another. How much more in matters all the more weightier? Um, this week I, I dealt with um, a couple instances in which I had uh, people um, uh, in, in my life who other people 
had questioned their salvation. Um, friends of mine, uh, even family members of mine, uh, I, they, the friends and my family members would come to me and say, Neil, you know, this person over here is, is judging me, is questioning my salvation. They're questioning whether I'm even a Christian. And, uh, and I just, you know, I, I just took time to encourage them and to remind them that that, that judgment that they have of you is not right. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. If, <laughs> and, and think how off base they are for just a moment. Because if, in fact, Paul is telling us in Romans 14 that you don't even get to judge eating and drinking, how much more so are you not to judge whether or not someone is a Christian or not a Christian? Wow, you know, those who those those people who were judging friends of mine, I, it's shame on them, shame on them for what they've done. Um, they don't realize that they're not even to judge what someone eats, let alone what their eternal destiny is. Paul says, "I know whom I have believed in, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed." Unto him against that day. Paul says, I know who I believed in. I know I'm a believer in Christ. I know I have assurance. And so don't let anyone judge you. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, don't let anyone judge you or cause you to doubt your salvation. Shame on them for that judgment. You know who you've believed in. To his own master he stands or falls. To God, we stand or fall. It is God who approves us or who disapproves us. And in trite matters like eating and drinking, God has seen fit to give us liberty and thus to make us stand or to be approved before Him. Verse 4 details how God will view such matters on the last day. Of course, it may be the tendency of some to use verse 4 as justification for doing whatever they want. Some people will, will point to verse 4 and say, well, see, God already approves of these gray matters so I can go out and I can do whatever I want. I can assure you that that's the last thing Paul has in mind here. Turn over to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. One book over. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Beginning in verse 23. Read the two verses there. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one, what? The other's well-being. I am my brother's keeper, Paul writes. I am my brother's keeper. My brother's well-being means something to me. It ought to mean something to me. God says it must mean something to me. And so inasmuch as all things, and this is with respect to Christian liberties, inasmuch as all these gray areas of drinking and dancing and tattoos and secular music and rated R movies and all, this, all these things, the list goes on and on. Gray areas that we could bring up every gray area. We could write the longest list. And Paul would say to that, all those things are lawful 
for me. But not all those things are helpful. All those things are lawful for me. But not all those things will edify. And so I shouldn't seek my own, but I should seek the well-being of everyone else. There was a story of a Christian woman who, uh, who I know well. And uh, she, she, was, uh, she was an occasional uh, a drinker. She, she loved a, a glass of wine at dinner. And uh, she would uh, generally do, show, do so in the privacy of her own home. One day she was out at a restaurant, and, and this was a woman who uh, is in leadership, Christian leadership. And one day she was out in a restaurant, and she was having dinner with a friend, and she had a glass of, of wine there on the table. And as she was having uh, dinner with her friend, a family whom she had ministered to approached the table. And she waved to them and greeted them, and, and they were very excited to see her. They, they were so overjoyed that they, they happened upon her at this restaurant, and they shook her hand and gave her a hug. And then she noticed a few seconds into the conversation when the mom and dad in the family noticed the glass of wine sitting there on the table. Immediately, their reaction to her, this Christian woman who was in leadership, their, their reaction to her went from joy in seeing her and excitement that, that they had happened upon her to, what are you doing? She could see the look dead on their face. It became immediately clear to her that this family looked upon alcohol as sinful as something that um, caused them to stumble. And she said the look, on, on their, the look on their face was one of shock. And she could tell right then and there that whatever ministry she had done with that family was now compromised because of how they were reacting to the glass of wine on the table. At that moment, that woman could have done a number of things. A number of things. At that moment, you as Christians uh, can do a number of things. You can look at them and say, yeah, I drink. It's good. Or, you can look at them and say, you know, uh, I can see that you're very troubled by this glass of wine on the table. I did not know that you felt that way about alcohol. I want you to know right here and right now that I'm not going to drink again in public out of respect for you and your family. And I'm sorry if I've caused you to stumble right here and right now. Two vastly different reactions, right? One is, yeah, I drink. And it's good. You should drink too. Because it's permissible. The other, sensitivity to the weaker brother. Sensitivity that goes far beyond what you've been asked to do, but you do it anyway because you're concerned to be your brother's keeper. I'm happy to report that, uh, that this woman took that latter approach. 
Though she didn't have the conversation with them directly, she made a desire in her heart that day, right then and right there, that she would never do that again. That she would never take that opportunity, that liberty, to have a glass of wine in public. And I believe she's kept to it to that day, to this day. Verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. The reaction of that family was one of disappointment. Not so much contempt, but just disappointment. And the woman in leadership, she could have judged that reaction. She could have decided to take that moment to teach them a lesson about the permissibility of alcohol. But she took the higher road. She took the road of Paul. She took the road of Christ. And she realized that though some things are lawful for her, not all things are helpful for her. And though though some things are permissible for her, not all things edify. She sought to be her brother's keeper. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. Beginning in verse 5. Paul writes this, 5 to uh, verse 6. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat. And gives God thanks. Another example Paul gives... We've talked about eating. Now let's talk about days. Why days? Well, in the Mosaic Law, there were certain days, certain festivals, certain religious observances that many Jewish Christians thought, hey, we need to pull all these into this Christian church. And Paul says, are you sure about that? Let's be careful about what we're drawing in, what we're, what we're making black and white. Let's be careful now. Is it gray or is it black and white? So he gives this example of the days here. You know, last Wednesday, we uh, had the beginning of a, of a certain religious holiday that's observed by many Christians worldwide, Christians and Catholics. It was the beginning of Lent. Um, some of you uh, perhaps uh, grew up practicing Lent. Perhaps I, I would imagine some of you practiced Lent today. There are Catholics Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and many from different church uh, denominations and traditions that practice Lent. Lent, for those of you that don't know, is a, it's a religious observance. It, it starts on what's called Ash Wednesday and continues all the way to the Holy Week, to Easter. And it's a, a period of, of uh, well, from Wednesday to Easter is about 46 days. Um, but the idea is, is that it's to be that 40 or so day period that Jesus had in the desert fasting and praying. It's to be that 40 day or so period in which Christians worldwide pray and repent and fast. And sometimes they they give up something that they, uh, a luxury that they uh, have had in the past. Uh, Some give up drinking alcohol. Others give up certain foods. Some refrain from television and other things. It's an act of self-denial, an act of piety in recognition of what Jesus did in going to the cross and dying for our sins. Our church uh, does not officially practice Lent, uh, nor have we ever officially endorsed Lent. However, I'm quite sure in this room that there are some 
who grew up doing it and who are even presently practicing Lent. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but whether you practice Lent or not, I want you to know that this is Paul's word for you today. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. You say, now wait a minute, Neil. Are you endorsing Lent? No, I'm not. I personally do not endorse Lent. Neither, however, neither do I find any inherent evil in the observance of Lent. None whatsoever. In fact, uh, you know, I, I find that the, the placing of the ashes on the forehead to be a little bit different, to be a little bit um, odd. I'm unaccustomed to that. But then again, 2,000 years ago, if I was, uh, excuse me, 4,000 years ago, if I was walking around in the time of Moses, I would see people wearing little Torahs on their head. And to this day, you see little, uh, you see little uh, boxes on the heads of Orthodox Jews. What are they doing? They're practicing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. that says, put the Torah between your eyes. So they wear this little thing on their head. Those, uh, the, the, the strictest of Jews in Israel today, you'll see them wearing that on their, on their forehead as they pray at the wailing wall. A little different, a, a little odd, a little unorthodox for me personally. The ashes, a little different, a little unorthodox for me. Um, but you know what? I'll, I'll say this. So long as Christians spend Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday praying and repenting and fasting before God, who am I to suggest they shouldn't? So long as their observance of these days are directed at Him and not to a priest and not to a pope and not to man and not to their family and not to just boring and dull routine, so long as they pray and they fast and they seek God from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, and so long as their worship and observance of days is directed at Him and no one else, who am I to forbid that? I'm no one to forbid that. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. To those who practice Lent, practice it to Him. And do not judge those who refrain from practicing Lent. To those of you who do not practice Lent, rather than despising the one who does, why not consider your own extended period of fasting and prayer? When's the last time you spent 46 days in relinquishing something for the Lord? Who are we to judge the heart of another? Above all, pay attention to your heart, Paul says. And notice this. This is, this is the key. This is the key to unlocking so much here. In verse 5 at the end, he says, Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, pay attention to your convictions. If you have a conviction that drinking alcohol is wrong, then pay attention to it and don't drink. Neither should you, though, despise the one who drinks. 
If you have a conviction that dancing is good for your soul, then don't show contempt for the one who does not dance. Especially me, who cannot dance. My wife thinks I can dance. Right, honey? Alright, good. No, I cannot dance. Friends, pay attention to your convictions. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit's promptings on you. There are such things as spiritual convictions, as convictions by the Holy Spirit who says to you, you know what, that's not good for you right now. Pay attention to that. But don't judge another. Don't judge another for exercising their liberty in Christ. Verse 7, For none of us, Paul writes, none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul says, you know, we're not without accountability. It's not like we have no master in this life. God is our judge. None of us lives to Himself. We don't die to ourselves. We live and breathe and even die in the presence of God. And Jesus' death and resurrection has proved that God is our judge. So in whatever you do, or in whatever you don't do, your actions or inactions is to be done with a view toward Him and not toward anyone else. Verse 10, Paul continues, But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? Do you know those two words are the same words he used in verse 3? Judge, krino, in verse 3. And again, the word show contempt, that's actually the same word as despise in verse 3. He's repeating what he's just said. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as long as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Jesus will be our judge. We will stand before Him on the last day and we will give account. It, 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 it's obvious that we will give account for our sin. It's quite obvious that, that we will give account for the black and the white, for the clear good things and bad things that we've done. We will give account of what is fundamentally good and bad in our lives. But what about the gray areas? What will that look like on the last day? When Jesus is seated on the throne, on the Bema Seat Judgment, and he's, he's bringing us before Him, and He says, Neil, come on up here. I'm going to talk about your entire life, and I'm going to talk about the good things you've done and the bad things you've done. And here, let's talk about the gray areas for a moment. Do you suppose that Jesus is going to have a big long list, you know, drinking, dancing, gambling, etc., 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 and go, Neil, was it right or wrong? And expect me to answer all these gray areas? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is going to go down the list and, and say, well, you, you got that gray area right, but you missed this one. Oh, yeah, you were right on that one, but nope, you were wrong on that one. That one's actually sin. That's not what Jesus is going to do with the gray areas. But you know what He is going to do with the gray areas? He's going to ask you this. He's going to say, Neil... When you were exercising your liberty, when you were doing things 
that for you was permissible. That for you, you had no conviction that this was evil or wrong. When you did those things, did you ever do them in the presence of one who would look upon your action and stumble? Neil, did you ever drink or smoke or gamble or watch that movie or listen to that music? Did you ever do these things in the presence of a weaker brother who looked upon your action and was crushed? Did you ever do it in defiance of Him? Did you ever do it and look upon Him and say, yeah, that's what I did. Get over it. I suspect that is precisely what Jesus will ask of you and me on the last day with respect to the gray areas. And I suspect that because that's what Paul says. Look what he says in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Jesus had some tough words to say about stumbling, causing others to stumble. He said in Mark 9.42, He says, If you ever cause one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, it'd be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were drowned in the bottom of the sea. He was using hyperbole there. Uh, he was using exaggeration to express how grave, how grave of an action it is to do something that causes another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Jesus says it's beyond excuse. There is no excuse for it. You will stand before Me on the last day and for every liberty that you did in defiance of a brother in Christ, for every liberty that you exercised in the presence of another, and they stumbled, you'll be held accountable for it. You'll be held accountable for it. It's inexcusable, Jesus says. It's inexcusable, Paul says. Of course, the practical ramifications of these words are immense. Immense. They are huge. They are widespread. And I, I ask you today, do you have ears to hear this? Do you have ears to hear the practical ramification of what Paul and Jesus are saying? Based on Mark 9.42, based on Romans 14.13, we, get this, we are not to do anything, anything, that causes a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Do you have ears to hear that? We are not to do anything that causes another person who sees us doing it to stumble. Or for that matter, who hears about us doing it to stumble. Someone, uh, I, was, I, was at a, uh, I was on vacation once 
and I was going out with, we were out with some friends and, and we, we, everybody kind of knew each other in the group. Uh, we were a more casual friends. We weren't like the greatest of friends, um, but we were out uh, on vacation years ago and I'll never forget it. One of the, one of the Christian men in the group, he walked up to me on the first day of the vacation. He walked up to me and he said, Neil, I want to ask you something. I said, yeah, sure. He said, would you mind if I drank this week? And I looked at him and I said, uh, I said, no, no, I, I don't mind at all. And he said, okay, great. And he walked away. And I thought, I thought about what he said, you know, in the, in the days and weeks afterwards. What that man did in asking me that question, do you know what he was doing? He was doing Romans 14, 13. He was doing exactly, let me see this, exactly what he should do. He walked up to a Christian that he didn't know, that he, he didn't know, you know, didn't know me very well. And he walked up to me and he said, Neil, would you mind, I know you're a brother in Christ, would you mind if I drank? Would that cause you to stumble if I were to have a beer? If I were to have a glass of wine? And I said, no, it's fine. It doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. And so he, he felt, what did he do? He felt at liberty. He felt at liberty to practice that gray area with a clean conscience, knowing he was not causing me to sin. He was not causing me to stumble. And friends, that's exactly, that's exactly what Paul would have you do. That's exactly what Jesus would have you do. When you are faced with a gray area, when you are faced with something that you know instinctively, others around you might find it offensive. They might find it to be something that would cause them to stumble. They might even think that it's sinful. You know what you ought to do? You either ought to just outright refrain from it, or you ought to go to them privately, privately. Say, hey, can I ask you a question? Would you mind if I did this? That is the spirit of Romans 14 and 15. We are just starting to understand how freeing it is to live the Christian life like this, friends. And I know some of you might be thinking, boy, that doesn't sound freeing at all. That sounds awful. But lest you forget, Jesus says every time you make them stumble, it's better that you hang, put a millstone around your neck and go in the water. Understand the gravity here, friends. You have a responsibility to your brother. And yeah, your brother needs to resist turning gray into black and white. No doubt. No doubt. But you're not the one to teach him that. Let the Lord teach him that. You are to show care for them. You're to be your brother's keeper. I want to close with Psalm 69, verse 6. Turn there, please. Psalm 69, middle of your Bible. Psalm 69, verse 6. Tremendous life verse for those of you that need one. Psalm 69, verse 6. David writes, Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Don't cause another brother to stumble. You are your brother's keeper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for an opportunity, Lord, to open Your Word, to be edified by it. Father, this is uh, some unique teaching in Romans 14. I suspect, Lord, that for many of us this is brand new. We 
have maybe read it, but Lord, we, we really have not grappled with the vast ramifications of it. I pray for the strong in this church. I pray that they would show great grace and carefulness with the weak. And I pray for the weak in this church. I pray that they would resist turning gray into what is black and white. God, we are in this together. We all have various convictions in the gray matters of life. We just need to show a lot of carefulness and grace to one another. I pray that you would help us to do that, Lord. And even now, as we practice Christian liberties, I pray that we would show today a sensitivity that goes far beyond what we've ever shown before, knowing how important it is not to cause another brother or sister to stumble. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.